It's like the first two rows. Brother and Sister Ben were brave enough to be there on the third row. Uh, so if you guys want to move up a little bit, that'd be awesome. Uh, that way I won't feel like I'm speaking into a, a cavernous cave or something. Amen. Praise the Lord. How many are thankful for what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you? Praise the Lord. We're going to go ahead and get started. We've got some uh, uh, sheets that are coming out that you can follow along with our lesson tonight. We're going through the book of Ephesians, studying the Word of God. And uh, chapter 2 of Ephesians, first of all, chapter 1 of Ephesians, we studied our possession in Christ Jesus. And uh, in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, we've been looking at our position in Christ Jesus. So in Ephesians if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians. And uh, we're going to read through what we studied last week. What's that? No, we're going to work on that this week. We're going to finish up chapter 2 this week. Um, very good. Brother Donnie's on top of it. He was recognized remembering where we were. Ephesians chapter number 2. Our position in Christ is what we're looking at this week. And uh, what I'd like to do is read through the first 10 verses. And uh, by way of review, we looked at how the Lord Jesus Christ has gotten us out of our graveyard. Gotten us out of our graveyard. So uh, uh, the first thing that we recognize is uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is sin's work against us sins work against us that's the first blank there and uh let's read those verses and you have he quickened who were dead everybody say dead dead in trespasses and sins wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. This lets us know what sin's work against us produced. It produced spiritual, spiritually dead individuals who had no choice but to live in disobedience. But God, everybody say, but God. But God, beginning with verse number four, it begins to talk about the next blank, which is God's work for us. What did God do for us? Verse uh, four, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. Ye are saved. Verse six, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Everybody say, thank you, Jesus. For what God has done for us is redeemed us, brought us back to life, if you would, quickened us, raised us up together, 
because he had an eternal purpose and work for us. And then in verse number 10, there are two things that happen. Number one, we see that after God did a work for us through the cross of Jesus Christ, now he wants to do a work in us. Everybody say in us. And then finally in verse 10, the second part, once he does a work in us, he can do a work through us. So 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 talks about sin's work against us, God's work for us or in favor of us, God's work in us and through us. Let's read verse 10. Let's all read it together. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We're his workmanship. He's working in us. But his purpose is that the product would be good works, him working through us. Not good works that we produce, but good works that happen naturally when we allow God to work through us. That was last week's lesson that we studied in depth. And this week we want to start with verses 11 through 22, which is Jesus Christ's peace mission. Jesus Christ's peace mission. We said that there were many efforts at peace throughout history. Individuals who went on a peace mission, whether it was a president of the United States or uh, the leader of the, the UN or um, uh, some different government leader that has tried to uh, promote and push peace, many of which have failed. But I'm so glad that Jesus Christ's great peace mission did not fail, but it was, in fact, successful. Everybody said amen. Everybody ready for your reading assignments? If you have your Bibles, just put your thumb up so I can see it. If you have your Bibles and you're willing to read for me. Uh, Sister Nezit, I want you to um, uh, read Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. S Sister Ben, how about uh, Romans chapter 1? Verses 18 through 23. It's under letter D there. Romans 1, 18 through 23. Brother Sergio, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Romans 9, 1 through 5. And these are on the sheet here. So if you want to kind of underline whatever it is I've asked you to read so that you'll so that you will know. Uh, Sister Jackie. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse number seventeen. Sister Alice, would you be willing to read Galatians chapter three, verses ten through thirteen? That's under letter A, number two, letter A. Um all right. Sister, would you be really willing to read uh, Romans eight? Verses 1 through 4, when we get to that portion. All right, who else? Sister. Uh, which which verse are we at right now? Galatians 3.28, you can read that one. Uh, Sister Kathy, if you can read Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Brother Marvin, would you be willing to look up Psalms 85? Verse number 10, Sister Irma, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and uh, 14. Brother Donnie, Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. Yes, that's fine. That's fine. 
Uh, who else? Who else have I not tapped into? Brother Chris, First um, Peter chapter two and verse nine. First Peter two nine. It's under letter A, number three. Um, all right, you guys are over there hiding because you don't like to read out loud, or you don't have your Bibles. One of the two. <laughs> Sister Opa, would you read uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21? And uh, you don't have... Uh, Brother Carlo, if you can read Acts chapter 7, verse 48 and 50. And I have three more. Okay. Sister Iris, 1 Corinthians 3, 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. And uh, two, Sister Kathy, 2 Corinthians... 518, and the last one, Sister Brown, uh, Matthew 16, 18. All right, brother, would you be willing to read for me right now? Look up 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter number 2. We're going to read verses 4 through 12, because what we have here is uh, very interesting in... in uh, uh, hopefully you understand that the book of Ephesians from our several weeks ago was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. We're also going to read a letter that was written by the Apostle Peter. Peter and Paul. Now, just so you understand, Peter and Paul did not hang out together throughout the apostolic age. They were like totally doing separate things. They were doing the same thing, the work of the kingdom of God, but they weren't able to talk on the phone every day and send letters to one another. But we find that uh, the uh, message that they have is is very much in sync. And uh, you will see this as we read, first of all, from 1 Peter chapter number 2, verses 4 through 12, and then go into our reading for this lesson today. But I just wanted to show you that. So 1 Peter chapter number 2, verses 4 through 12. It's somewhat of a lengthy reading if uh, you want to follow along as my brother reads that for us.
Amen. Praise the Lord. This uh, reading, just so you understand, was written by the Apostle Peter to Gentiles who were once outsiders but became part of Abraham's promises. He said, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and a holy nation that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We will say that we will see tonight that the exact message uh, of 1 Peter chapter 2 that we just read is the exact same message of the second part of Ephesians chapter 2 of what God has done through Jesus Christ on this great uh, and wonderful peace mission. Now, um, just so you know, there are three things that happened in this peace mission. Uh, and first, the condition of the first condition was separation. Separation. Verses 11 and 12 tell us how that the Gentiles and the Jews were, number one, separated from one another, and also they were separated from Jesus Christ. But this is written more specifically to Gentiles, what the Gentiles were. Now, verses 1, verse 1 and 2, let's read together here of uh, not verses 1 and 2, verse 11 and 12. It says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because... I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong book there. It didn't make sense. I'm like, I don't remember reading that today. Verse 11, Wherefore remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision, uncircumcision by those by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. In other words, the Jews call you uncircumcised because they're circumcised in the flesh. Verse 12, that at the same time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. This is where you were, Gentiles, before Jesus Christ. Words like aliens, foreigners, strangers, hopeless. This is what the Gentiles were. And the key word is separation. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul turns back to the work of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in uh in the New Testament church because the majority of the converts at this time in the church in Ephesus were Gentiles. Now, of course, we understand here when the Bible talks about circumcision and uncircumcision, it's talking about the difference, the ceremonial difference between a Jew and a Gentile. The act of circumcision of the young boys was what separated, uh, what was the sign of distinction and separation for the Jewish people and the sign of the Old Testament covenant that God made with the Hebrew people. And so the Apostle Paul is reminding them, you were called uncircumcised by those that were circumcised. You were looked down on. And, uh, of course, we understand that in the New Testament, that circumcision, the rite of circumcision performed by a doctor, has nothing to do with the New Testament covenant. But the New Testament covenant is about a circumcision that happens on the inside, in the heart, that doesn't happen with hands, but it happens through faith in Jesus Christ, and it is confirmed at water baptism. Amen. Now, here's the point. Why the separation? Anybody ever wondered this before? Why did God 
caused the Jews to be different from other Gentile nations? Why did he call them out? Why did he call them out to be separate? And uh, from the beginning of the time that God called Abraham, spoke to him, and uh, found favor, Abraham found favor in God's eyes, God made a difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. Everybody understand? Jews are children of Abraham. Gentiles are everybody else. So I, I, I remember hearing talk as a child about Jews and Gentiles. I thought there was probably maybe the same number of Jews as there were of Gentiles. But in reality, the number of Jews is minuscule in, in terms of uh, percentages to the rest of the world, which is Gentiles. But from the Jewish perspective, it was Jews and Gentiles. And God made this distinction and difference from the very beginning. His purpose, understand this, God's purpose in having a distinction, separation between the Jews and Gentiles was not so the Jews could boast. That's what they twisted it and made it be. But it was not for purposes that they would boast, but that they might be a blessing and a help to the Gentiles. Remember that the promise to Abraham was, I'm going to bless you, and through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So the purpose of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles was not so the Jews could feel better than the Gentiles, but was so they could be a blessing and a help to the Gentiles. And they could not be that blessing and help if they were just the same as them. So God set them apart so that he could use them to be a channel of revelation and a channel of his goodness to the other heathen nations. This is what God's people, the Hebrew people, were. They were, you'll find in the Old Testament, they were a container for the word of God. They protected it. They preserved it. They kept it safe. Kept it safe. They were an example. They were meant to be an example of if you obey God's law, look how God's going to bless you. That's why God wanted to bless them, both financially and with health and uh, in their nation, was so he could prove a point. Not just to prove a point, but so the world would begin to understand that Jehovah is God. And Jehovah, just like remember in the story of Daniel, after Daniel uh, was favored by God, and uh, God saved him from the lion's den, and then another place God gave him the great revelation. And those two examples, what did the emperor, the great world emperor, we're not talking about like a little president of a little nation, but a worldwide empire, emperor, say, said, Jehovah, he is the God. Why? Because God's favor was on Daniel. Daniel was different. He wouldn't pray, or he wouldn't bow down to the image. He prayed three times a day. He would not acquiesce to uh, the pressure from the outside world to blend in. He stood out, not so he could boast, but so he could reveal God, the true God, to unbelievers and heathens. That was God's overall purpose for Israel. The problem was, if they disobeyed God, right, and they broke the covenant, and then God continued to bless them, then the point would not be made. Does everybody understand that? That if you obey God, His favor will be upon you. I made a covenant with these people. They're not keeping their end of it, but I'm going to go ahead and bless them anyway. That doesn't prove anything to the world. But God separated them and set them apart so they could be a channel 
of Revelation. And we'll talk a little bit more about this. But the key word describing the Gentiles before Jesus Christ was God's favor and promise and uh, His uh, um, covenant was with the Jewish nation. And Gentiles were outside. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They had no hope and they were without Jesus Christ and they were without God. So let's look at how they were uh, according to the word of God. They were without Christ. They did not have Jesus Christ. And of course, the Ephesians worshiped the goddess Diana. And that's what uh, the book of Ephesians was written to the people of Ephesus. And so they knew nothing about Jesus Christ. And so Paul points out that before Jesus Christ died and before the Apostle Paul came preaching Jesus Christ, the Ephesians were in a Christless state, and it was a tragedy. Secondly, it points out that they were aliens or they were without citizenship. Israel was God's nation. God had called them out, and uh, this was uh, kind of a unique deal. God's blessing and His law was with the Hebrew people. And so Israel was God's nation in a way that the Gentiles could not experience. They were without covenants. We do understand that the first covenant that God gave to Abraham was that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But there were no direct covenants from God to non-Hebrew people. The covenants were from God to the Gentile nations. And... uh, the Gen- I'm sorry, the covenants were to the Jewish nation, not with the Gentile nation. So the Gentiles were aliens, they were strangers, and guess what? The Jews never let them forget it. <laughs> the Jews were very anxious to remind them and quick to remind them, you don't have the covenants. You don't have God's favor. You don't have God's blessing. And that attitude made God sick because they had taken the separation and they had used it the wrong way. They had used it as a point of boasting, a point of superiority. They got the complete wrong attitude when the whole purpose behind it was that they could show forth the greatness of God. Many of the Pharisees would pray daily, Oh God, I give thanks that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. you imagine? (laughs) And uh, so before Jesus Christ, they were outside of the protection and favor of the covenants. Also, the Ephesian Gentiles who now made up the church before Jesus Christ, peace mission, they were without hope. And uh, when you look at the pagan religions and their belief systems during this time and the multiple gods and the mythology and the emptiness even of the philosophers of this time, you realize that it was a people in Ephesus without hope. They were just existing and living. But through Jesus Christ and his great peace mission, all of this was reversed. They were no longer separated. They were no longer without Christ. They were no longer without citizenship. They were no longer without covenants. They were no longer without hope, but they had hope, citizenship, the covenants of God. They had Jesus Christ and they were no longer separated. Everybody say amen. Because I think all of you are Gentiles and we have this to rejoice in as well. Amen. Hallelujah. And finally, uh, they were without God. But let's look at some of these verses that reinforce the idea of uh, how, first of all, the Gentiles were separated and how they were without hope. Colossians chapter 2 and uh, verse number 11. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse number 11. Wow, that's awesome. The Bible says here, this is to us Gentile believers. Remember, sign of the covenant, circumcision, the old covenant. New covenant, the apostle Paul is saying, when you became a part of Jesus Christ's covenant, you were circumcised too. But it was not a physical cutting with a knife. But it was a spiritual cutting away of your old sinful nature. Can everybody see how baptism as it goes on to say, being buried with him in baptism is the perfect example in the New Testament of what was accomplished in the Old Testament by circumcision. The cutting away of the excess flesh is a sign of the Old Covenant. There's a cutting away of the sinful nature that happens in waters of baptism when we're buried with him in baptism. Amen? The body of sin is destroyed. There's something left in the water, not physically, but spiritually there's a cutting away of that old sinful nature that happens in New Testament salvation. Amen? All right, let's look at how we were without hope. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through Amen. What is this passage of Scripture talking about? Very important passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 1. It is. It tells us the condition of human beings who don't believe in, in the one God. A lot of times we think that humanity came from believing in multiple gods and they finally were revealed the one true God. The reality was God revealed himself and his oneness from the very beginning. That's what the Bible says. Human beings understood the oneness of God but they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man and four-footed beasts and creeping things and things with wings. Uh, verse 21 says that she just read, uh, because that which may be known of God is manifest in, in them because God has shown it unto them. Uh, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That means God's eternal power and Godhead is obvious to human beings when they look at creation. But because they refuse to receive God, accept Him in their knowledge, they turn the truth of God into a lie, profess themselves to be wise, they become fools, and they begin to worship idols. This is the condition, the hopeless condition of human beings without Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5.
What the Apostle Paul is saying here is, first of all, he's sad because the Hebrew people, for the majority, has rejected Jesus Christ. But he's saying here, Jesus Christ came for them, and to them applied the law, all the promises, all the gifts. It was for the Hebrew people. Remember what Jesus said when the Greek Syrophoenician woman came to him? And uh, first of all, he ignored her as he cried, as she cried out and said, Jesus, thou son of David. Then, then Jesus said, I am not come but for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he said, why should I take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? And so this lets us know that, that uh, uh, first of all, the Lord was testing her faith. But secondly, that the understanding of the Hebrew people and Jesus' original purpose was to come to the Hebrew people and that they might bring salvation to the whole world, which is really what happened. But the majority of them rejected Jesus Christ. But those that did accept the Lord became the conduit through which. Everybody understand that the early church was all Jews? All the way until Acts chapter number 10. All the thousands of converts, spirit-filled people, speaking in tongues, casting out devils, all of them were Jews. And then finally it was revealed. And then before very long, there were way more Gentiles in the church than there were Jews. So it came through the Hebrew people. Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17. Amen. So God had called the Jews, beginning with Abraham, so that through them he might reveal himself as the one true God. It was in the Jews that he deposited his word, and through the Jews that he gave the world Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came through the Hebrew people. Israel, God planned for Israel to be a light to the Gentiles so that they too might be saved. But the sad thing is, is that Israel had become like the Gentiles and the light burned very dimly. And this can be a warning to the church as well. God has called us to be separate from the world because we cannot help the world if we're like the world. But being separate from the world, we can be a benefit to the world. The danger zone, come on now, is when our separation from the world becomes a source of pride and boastfulness in which our attitude precludes us from God's favor and usefulness. And so we have to keep it in our mind that God has separated us from the world because the problem is when the church is least like the world, it does the most for the world. So the problem is, when the church is more like the world, it does the le- less for the world. Everybody got that? The more the church is like the world, the less it can be an impact and make a benefit and help. But the, 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 the more separate and unique and different from the world is, that the church is, the greater the impact it can have. But it must be understood in the context. God has separated us so that we can reveal God's glory so that we could be a conduit of His Word, so that it could shine through us. Amen? And that's the purpose. Amen? Not that we're better than anyone else, but that we can show forth the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into it. That's why we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. There's something different about the true church. Come on. 
And when the church just acts like the world and goes to all the same places as the world and watches all the things that the world is watching, amen, and looks and acts like the world, it is no benefit to the world and ceases to be the church. Amen. Praise the Lord. But the true church is a church that can reflect God's glory. Amen. Number two. Okay, I've hit an endless loop. Maybe somebody can help me, brother. Because uh, I don't want to be here all night teaching the same uh, slide over and over and over again. <laughs> the next point is what God did for the Gentiles. They were separated. What did God do for them? The key word is reconciliation. Reconciliation, which is what God did for the Gentiles. Reconciliation. All right, let's read those verses. Verses 13 through uh, 18. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh or close by the blood of, the, of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Enmity means warfare or angst or conflict. Even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile, everybody say reconcile, both. Who's both? Anybody know who both is? Gentiles. That he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. So are you getting a drift of what happened here? What Jesus Christ did is he broke down the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles so that he could make one new creature, one new person, and took both of them and then first he reconciled them with each other and in the same process reconciled them both to God. So the point is the Jews needed reconciling to God as well because their works were insufficient and their attitude was not right. Amen? Because they kept the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law. Uh, to make, uh, let's see, verse 16, having slain the enmity thereby or putting to death the conflict putting to death the conflict between Jews and Gentiles. That's what Jesus did. That was his peace mission. Stop the conflict between Jews and Gentiles. But not only that, but stop the enmity or conflict between God and human beings to bring this one body, which is called the church, this one person made up of Jews and Gentiles that have been reconciled together and reconciled them with God. Amen. To put to death the conflict and the warfare that used to be there. Amen? And came and preached peace. He came and preached peace to you which were afar off. That means the Gentiles. That means those that didn't have the covenant. And to them that were nigh. That means to the Jews. He was preaching peace to everybody. Verse 18. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Who's the both? Jews and Gentiles. 
We both have access through one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to God. Verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. No longer strangers, no longer foreigners, no longer outsiders, but fellow citizens together with the household of God. Amen? So what God did for the Gentiles, first of all, He took care of the enmity, the conflict, the warfare, the struggle, the stress, the prejudice between the Jews and the Gentiles. As we read verses 13 through 15, he first of all uh, dealt with that and spoke peace to that. Amen. And uh, enmity is the key word in this section. Enmity. The enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles, and then the enmity between sinners, which could be Jews or Gentiles, and God. So the greatest peace mission in history is Jesus Christ reconciling the Jews and the Gentiles and then reconciling both to himself in one body. Amen? What does reconcile mean? Reconciliation. Reconcile. What does it mean? To reunite, to bring together again. Exactly. Reunite bring together again. If a man and a woman, a married couple are estranged and they want reconciliation, that means they want to be brought back together again, right? And the same is true if a, if a parent is estranged from a child and they desire to be brought back together again, this is the same key word again, to reconcile and to bring back together again. Now the point is, Sin is the greatest separator in the world. Every separation happens through sin. Every separation, because sin is the great separator. And uh, so what God did for the Gentiles was, first of all, to destroy the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles. As we said, God had put a difference between them so that he might fulfill his purpose in salvation. But once the purpose was accomplished, there was no more difference. Once Jesus Christ was revealed, once the salvation message was declared, there was no more difference because the difference was erased through the work of Jesus Christ in reconciling them together or taking down the wall of partition and bringing them together. This was a very difficult concept for the early church to understand because they had been born and bred and raised and indoctrinated in the idea that Jews, ethnic Jews are di- and religious Jews are just supposed to be different and unique from the rest of the world and uh, that you're supposed to be prideful about this and uh, hold on to this. And so the Jews had been different from the Gentiles in religion and and dress, and diet, and laws, all the way back until Peter was sent to the Gentiles in, uh, um, in Acts chapter 15. Now, we're not going to read the whole Acts chapter 15, but Acts chapter 15 is a very interesting thing because just a little history here. I told you the whole church was Jewish, everybody, until God prepared to do a new thing. Acts chapter 10 is an awesome thing to read because in Acts chapter 10, the Spirit of the Lord through an angel began to deal with Peter. 
but let him know that I'm going to do a brand new thing, that it's not going to be just Jews in the church, but I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. I'm going to make the promises of the covenant available to people who are not Jews. Wow. In order to get this message across to Peter, remember what he did? He brought down a sheet from heaven that had all these animals that were ceremonially ceremonially unclean for Jews to eat. I had some bacon, some ham, some lobster, crab meat, maybe some grasshoppers. I don't know. I think you could eat grasshoppers. Those were legal. But all these, all these unclean, illegal meats come down on the sheet. And, uh, Peter's kind of in a trance, a spiritual state, and the Lord says to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, Never. Oh, this is some kind of a test. God, you want to see if I'm still true. My tradition, I would never eat anything unclean. Never have my whole life. I'm a practicing Jew. God spoke to him again. And finally, the Lord said, what I have cleansed, don't you call it unclean anymore. In other words, I'm getting ready to do a new thing. And it was in this same chapter, in Acts chapter 10, that God organized this rendezvous. He's speaking somewhere else to a devout Gentile, a man named Cornelius. And then God's trying to break through Peter's prejudice and misconception about what the gospel is about and get him to realize that Jesus died for everybody and that and the gospel is universal and the Holy Spirit is for everyone. When Peter finally came to realize that, then God organized this rendezvous between him and Cornelius. And Cornelius and all his household were saved, received the Holy Spirit, baptized in Jesus' name, grafted into the true vine. And from that point forward, the church shifted directions and the Jewish believers begin to decrease and the Gentile believers begin to increase in number. But the point is in Acts chapter 15, we have all these new Gentile believers in the church. And the conflict is now, well, they're accepting Jesus Christ, which is the Son of God, which is Jehovah manifest in the flesh. Shouldn't they also begin to practice all the things that we've been practicing for years? as Jewish believers, and should they submit to the law of the Old Testament? This became a big source of contention. One of the sources of contention is these were adults being converted to Jesus Christ and believing in Him and receiving His Spirit and excited and being used of God, no doubt, in the gifts of the Spirit, ministering to other people. And all of a sudden, somebody comes along and says, you know what? You're not really right with God unless you go be circumcised. And uh, these adults are saying, I have to do this. I've already believed in Jesus Christ. I already received His Spirit. Do I have to go back now to this ceremonial requirement from the Old Testament? And so that's what came to a boiler head at Acts chapter 15. And the question was, must a Gentile become a Jew to become a Christian? And their conclusion was, as they came together, the council of elders was, no, Jews and Gentiles are saved the same way. 
They're not saved through the Old Testament covenant, but they're saved through the New Testament covenant, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. So the enmity was gone. The warfare was gone. The separation and distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles as ethnic people was gone because Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ was the manner to be saved. Amen? Now the cause of this warfare enmity was the law which separated the Jewish people. And the law made a definite distinction between righteousness and unrighteousness, between holiness and unholiness, between Jews and Gentiles. So the divine ordinances that were given by God to Israel stood as a wall between the Jews and the other nations. And uh, in fact, there was a wall in the Jewish temple that's being referred to here in this passage of Scripture. And, and this was in the court of the Gentiles, which allowed Gentiles to come into an area of the temple, but they could only go so far, and they couldn't go past that dividing wall. This was literally a wall in the temple. In fact, archaeologists dug up uh, in the remains of uh, Herod's temple, and they found a placard or an inscription from Herod's temple. Let me read to you exactly what it says. No foreigner may enter within this barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So the middle wall of partition, which Peter talks about and is referenced here in Ephesians, is a literal partition in the temple in Jerusalem that separated where the Gentiles could walk to where only the Hebrews, only those that were a part of the covenant could go in. And what the Bible is saying here is Jesus took and destroyed that wall. Just like the veil was rent from top to bottom in the tabernacle, the temple, when Jesus was crucified, Jesus was destroying that separation within the Jewish people where now not just the priest could go in, but everybody was a priest. But he also, not literally, but figuratively destroyed that middle wall of partition between the Jews and the Gentiles. So not only could Jews who were or weren't priests go in, now even Gentiles that would believe in Jesus Christ could go through the door, which was Jesus Christ, into the holy place, into the presence of the Lord to enjoy the blessings of God. Amen. Everybody Everybody say amen. Hallelujah. So the enmity was destroyed. And this wall had to be destroyed in order for the Jews to be reconciled with the Gentiles. And uh, the Bible, let, let's see here. Uh, let's read a few of these verses regarding the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles and how it was destroyed. Galatians chapter 3 verses 10 through 13. No man, let's just make this plain, no man is justified by the works of the law. Everybody say, impossible. It can't happen. You can't be justified by the works of the law. You can't be made right by the works of the law. The just live by faith in Jesus Christ. Thank God for what He's done for me. I can't do it myself. I've done it by Jesus Christ. All right, Romans chapter number 8, verses 1 through 4.
Everybody understand what it's saying here. The righteousness of the law is not bad. The righteousness of the law is still God's expectation. Not the letter of everything in the law, but the righteousness of the law is still God's standard. But the point is it cannot be fulfilled in the flesh. But how is it fulfilled? What's that last verse? The righteousness of God, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in sinful man. I mean, what does it say there? In those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So we fulfill the law today, not because we obey the point by point of a law in a book, but because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, number one. Number two, and we walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And when you pursue after the Spirit by reading God's Word, by praying daily, by letting the Spirit speak through you and flow through you, you fulfill the righteousness of the law. So the law is not bad. The law is not evil. The righteousness of the law did not become uh, uh, suddenly uh, um, no longer relevant It's still God's standard for righteousness, but it cannot be fulfilled by trying to obey it line by line. It can only be fulfilled in the Spirit, by being filled with the Spirit and walking after the Spirit and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Amen? Hallelujah. And finally, Galatians chapter 3 and uh, verse number 28. Isn't that awesome? It says there's no such thing as a Jew or a Gentile anymore. There's no such thing as male or female in the eyes of God or separation or one better than the other. We're all one. Amen? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the Lord. Everybody say praise God. Hallelujah. Now, after Jesus destroyed the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles, not after, but while he's destroying this enmity and taking down the wall of partition, his peace mission on the cross also destroyed the enmity or the conflict between sinners and God. Let's read verses 16 and 18 again. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. So the enmity also was destroyed between sinners and God. So both the Jews and the Gentiles needed to be reconciled to God because the righteousness of the law was insufficient. And uh, uh, in Acts 15, Peter said that God put no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles, but purified all of them that were believers, purified their hearts by faith. So it's not a question of does a Gentile need to become a Jew to become a Christian? But the point is both Jews and Gentiles need to admit to being sinners. Amen? And then let God reconcile them. So it was easier for a Gentile sometimes than a Jew to accept Jesus Christ. Because in order to accept Jesus Christ, you had to admit that you were a sinner and needed a Savior. Amen? So it was the same law that separated the Gentiles and the Jews from God. And Jesus Christ bore the curse of sin on the cross. Hallelujah. Thank God for reconciliation. Amen. Thank God for bringing it back together again. Hallelujah. Romans chapter 3, verse 22 through 23. 
There's no difference. There's no difference at all. So uh, the same law separates both Jews and Gentiles. All right, the next verse. Um, uh, let's see. Psalms chapter 85 and verse 10. I love this verse of Scripture. This is awesome. All right. Now let's see what this is talking about. Here's what Jesus did. On the one hand, a loving God wanted to be reconciled with human beings. On the other hand, this same loving God was a holy God and a righteous God and could not simply overlook sin, right? And say, okay, I'm just going to overlook it and be reconciled to them. So the a God of love wants to be reconciled with human beings and with sinners. But a God of holiness has to see to it that sin is judged. He's a God of justice. And God solved this problem by sending His Son, by coming in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice for our sins and revealing His love and at the same time meeting the demands of righteousness. Brother Marvin, read that verse again. I always thought this was a really cool verse. What two things kissed? Or first of all, just read the whole thing. Okay, mercy and truth are met together. Okay, first of all, you have to understand that this is an Old Testament verse that's prophesying about how God is going to save human beings. It's a prophecy about Jesus. What two things came together? Mercy and truth came together. And then... And then uh, it further illustrates this point by saying that two things kissed. What were the two things? Righteousness and peace. So on the one hand, you have mercy and peace. On the other hand, you have righteousness and truth. And the problem was God is wanting to extend mercy and God is a God of justice and truth and cannot overlook sin. But the two things came together. God's mercy and God's justice. And the only way they could come together was there had to be a sacrifice that paid the price for sin and fulfilled, fulfilled the righteousness of the law and at the same time showed the mercy of God. And that was what Jesus Christ did. He brought together righteousness, amen, righteousness, truth, and mercy, amen, and brought them together. And God's mercy met together with His righteousness in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So when Jesus Christ died for our sins, God was not overlooking our sins, but He was paying the price Himself for our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. Say, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Amen. Everybody say it's under the blood. Everything that was against me, every charge that was against me was covered and taken care of 
by the blood of Jesus. Amen. Say, thank God for the blood. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. So the enmity between sinners and God did Jesus Christ destroy. Finally, number three, uh, the last one, what Jews and Gentiles are in Christ. That's not the correct word. Uh, The correct word is unification or unify. Unification. What Jews and Gentiles are in Christ Jesus. We're going to read those final three verses here of chapter 2. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Hallelujah. Paul repeats the word one over and over to emphasize the unifying work of Jesus Christ and his peace mission. He talks about one new man, verse 15, one spirit in verse 18. Verse 15 also talks about one body. All spiritual distance and all division have been overcome by Jesus Christ and he unified all together in one. And he gives us finally three pictures that illustrate the unity that believing Jews and Gentiles have in Christ Jesus. The first one is they are one nation. No longer is it the Hebrew nation, but now it is the Jesus nation. And it's made up of all types and colors and ethnicities and backgrounds, religious backgrounds, who of people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. One new nation. And there are uh, some verses here regarding the new nation. Matthew 21 and verse 43. Jesus was speaking to the Hebrew nation. Now the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you, Hebrew nation, and given to a nation that was bearing fruit. And that nation was not a nation like a country. Remember, everything in the Old Testament was physical, illustrating something that was coming that was spiritual. So the nation that we have in Jesus Christ, this nation is not a physical nation with barriers and armies and, and a president and all this. It is a spiritual nation that would show forth the fruits of Jesus Christ. And we are that new nation. First Peter 2 and 9. All believers together make up one holy nation. Amen. Red, yellow, black, white. Amen. African descent, Asian descent, European descent, Middle Eastern descent, all make up one. Amen? One holy nation. We become one in Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Amen. Everybody said amen. Hallelujah. 
So we are one nation in Jesus Christ. Secondly, in, in verse 19, it uh, gives us the image of the family. We're fellow citizens, that's in a, nation, in a national sense, but we are also in the household of God. We're in his family. We're in his house. We become a part of the family of God. Amen? And finally, this last one is so cool because it says we are being fashioned into a temple, being made into a temple. Now, in the Old Testament, God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle, right? His glory dwelt in the tabernacle. And then when they built a permanent structure called the temple, it dwelt there. And whenever Israel sinned, the glory departed. But the next dwelling place of God's glory was not a stone temple, but it was a human body called Jesus Christ. And that's where the glory of God and God's presence dwelt. But God took this temple and nailed it to a cross. Now today, through the Holy Spirit, God dwells in the church, which is the temple of God. God doesn't dwell in man-made temples. He does not dwell in church buildings. What does it say in Acts 7, verse 48, 50? Amen. Bible saying here, God doesn't dwell in a building made out of stone or a temple or concrete structure. Heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. So God doesn't dwell any longer in a physical temple. But the Bible is saying here that God is creating a holy temple in the Lord. And this temple, when it's built together, made up of all these different individuals, becomes a habitation or a dwelling place or a living place for God. Amen? So God dwells in His church, doesn't dwell in man-made temples, but He dwells in the hearts of those people who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? And He also dwells in the church collectively. That's why when we come together, we can feel and sense the presence of God. But even when you're not together, you can call upon God and feel and sense His presence. Amen? Now, this uh, church that's being built, the foundation of this temple, it said here is the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. We see this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 11. Who's got that verse? Jesus Christ is the foundation for this temple. Everything that's being built, this temple is being built, this dwelling place for God, this habitation for God. It's built on the foundation of the law and the prophets, the prophets and the apostles. So it's the prophets and the apostles. That's why the Old Testament and the New Testament make up the foundation for the church. The words of the prophets and the words of the apostles. We are built on the apostles' doctrine. Here's a point. You can't start building a building, lay a foundation, and decide you want to put the building somewhere else where the foundation is not. 
you got to build on the foundation. And the true temple of God is going to be built doctrinally and in practice the same foundation that was laid by the apostles 2,000 years ago. Church, that's why we still baptize in Jesus' name, even though the majority of Christianity does not. Why? Because that's what the apostles practiced and that's what the apostles taught. This is the foundation for the temple of God. That's why we still believe and practice the things that the apostles believed and practiced. We cannot deviate from the true foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone that ties it all together. Everybody say it's all in Him. Amen. It's all in Jesus Christ, this temple, foundation of the apostles and prophets. And uh, so the Holy Spirit, how does, it, how does this temple build? This is the final point here that I'm making. This temple that God is building happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. And to give you a little visual of what happens when this temple is built, the Holy Spirit has to get some building material for this temple. And so how he does it is he has to take some dead stones out of a miry pit and he has to quicken them and bring them to life. Because the Bible says that this temple is made out of living stones or lively stones. He takes dead stones out of the pit of sin or out of the miry clay that we used to sing about from Psalms chapter 40. He gives them lives and sets them lovingly into the temple of God. And this temple is fitly framed together as the body of Christ. Amen? So that every part accomplishes the purpose that God has uh, had in mind from the very beginning. Amen? So he raised us, quickened us, raised us from the dead and seated us in our rightful position, reconciled us and set us in to the temple of God. Amen. And now he's given us a job. Since we've been reconciled, our job is to be ministers of reconciliation. Second Corinthians 518. So he reconciled us through the blood of Jesus Christ to God and then gave us the task of reconciling others to Jesus Christ. Finally, Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. This is what Jesus did. And our rightful position in Jesus Christ from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 right through the very end is that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, lying in a miry pit of sin, separated from God, having no covenants, having no hope, having no blessing, amen, having no favor, being separated from the commonwealth of Israel, separated from the blessings and the favor of God, 
dead in our trespasses and sin, but Jesus Christ comes along, amen, and does a work on the cross for us uh, and then says, I want you to be my workmanship. So he said, I'm going to take you out of the miry clay and I'm going to bring life into you. But my purpose is not just to bring life into you so that you have hope, but my purpose is I want to work through you to reconcile other people so that they can be put in their rightful place. Uh, Then he took us now as breathing, living instead of spiritually dead things and made us lively stones and set us into the wall of this temple that's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets uh, that's growing up into a holy temple and habitation for the Lord. That's why you feel the presence in the house of God. When God's people get together, it's not about your church building or your sound system or your praise team. It's about is God's temple being built with lively stones, amen, that have been brought to life by God's spirit and built on the right foundation and turned into the temple of God. Everybody said, amen. I'm in my rightful position. Come on, say, I'm in my rightful position. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I once was separated, but now I'm brought back together again and reconciled. Uh, I once had no purpose, but now I have a purpose. Uh, I once had a wasted future and no fulfillment, but now I'm fulfilled because I'm set in the temple of God. I once was without Christ, but now I'm in Christ. Hallelujah. I once was broken and spread like on a potter's field, but now I'm put back together again. My rightful position is in his body. My rightful position is in the building, in the wall. My rightful position is having God work through me. Let's stand together. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us, reconciling us through your blood. Thank you for your word, Lord Jesus, and the richness and the depth of understanding what you have done for us, what you're doing in us right now, and what you want to do through each and every one of us, through us as a church, but through us as individuals as well. Go with every member of this body. Let them be encouraged in Jesus Christ, and let them be encouraged as they understand their position in you. We thank you for it, Jesus, and we give you glory and honor. Everybody said amen.